0: God's the one who's in charge. The God of the universe was born in a barn, sleeping in a feeding trough because God had prophesied that's how it would happen hundreds of years before it ever happened.
1: Praise to the God who reigns above.
0: I love what J.C. Ryle said. He said, little did these rulers think that they were helping to lay the foundation by giving the census, to lay the foundation of a kingdom before which the empires of this world would all go down one day. J.C. Rowe went on to say, A true Christian should never be greatly moved or disquieted by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. He should see with the eye of faith a hand overruling all that they do to the praise of the glory of God.
1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando, We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the Book of Luke. God brought a child to a woman who had been barren for many years. His name was John. We know him as the Baptist. He was a child sent from God to go before the coming Messiah, the chosen Savior of the world. The angel Gabriel had been sent to Mary, a young woman in the town of Nazareth. Was betrothed to Joseph, a carpenter. The God of the universe would condescend to be born to a poor family in a poor neighborhood. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 2, verse 1.
0: We finished chapter 1 last week and we saw that the Messiah's advanced man, John, has been born, surrounded by the miraculous. People are whispering Is this the day that we hope for? Is it finally here? And while the world moves on, a woman from Nazareth's pregnancy begins to show. We discuss the messianic fervency in Israel during this time. And I think we only get one perspective when we do so. We lose track of the fact of the heavenly excitement that's going on. See, this was the day that God had been planning for from the dawn of time, the day that he proved forever his goodwill toward mankind. And so however excited you might be on this day, and however excited others might have been on this day, the most excitement was going on in heaven. So as we study chapter two, let's look at that. Chapter two, beginning in verse one. Now it says here, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Luke places a setting before he gets into the actual event. It says here that Augustus took a census. It says it came to pass in those days around the same time of John the Baptist's birth, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was originally named Octavian. He was given the name Augustus when he became, not emperor, he didn't take that title, but historians generally accept that he is the first Roman emperor. In fact, the month of Sextilus was changed to the month of August in honor of Kim. It wasn't always August, it used to be called something else. Well, it mentions here that this decree was that all the world should be taxed. Now, obviously, Rome didn't cover all the world. The word means the inhabited earth, and in this case, for the Romans, the only people that mattered were those in their empire. So all the people in the Roman Empire should be taxed. Now, the word here for tax, it can mean to have one's name put in public record for tax purposes or to have one's name put in public record for census purposes. Now, the reason you would do it for census purposes is to determine who could be compelled to serve in the military. Now, because Jews were exempt from the military, therefore, the translators wrote taxed. That's a problem because we have no record in history of an emperor-wide tax at this time period in history. And many have critiqued the accuracy of Luke's account because of this. Our constitution mandates that we take a census every 10 years. The Romans did this every 14 to 20 years. They didn't have a set time. We have documents of every census from 20 AD to 270 AD. So a Roman census during this time would have taken place right around the birth of Christ, which makes more sense since we have no record of a taxation period at this time. However, there is another possibility. In 3 BC, it was the silver jubilee of Augustus' reign. And in celebration of this, he gave a decree which required an oath of loyalty from everyone in the Roman Empire. Josephus says that everyone in Israel took this oath except for 6,000 Pharisees. Roman records give us the date of the taking in Israel of this oath. It was 16 months prior to Herod's death. The time Of the birth of Christ. Justin Martyr, a second century Christian writer, said that this census can be proven by looking at Roman records in his day. So, just because we haven't found those records doesn't mean they didn't exist. The Roman Empire wasn't friendly to Christianity at this time, and they would have taken any opportunity to disprove something in the scriptures. And yet no writer disputes Justin Martyr's claim that there was a census during this time. I think I'll take his word over the fact that our archeologists haven't discovered something yet. Now, verse two says something else that's interesting. It says, and this taxation was first made when the King James Cyrenius, his name was Quirinius, was governor of Syria. This taxing, again, the word here just means registration. This registration was first made, or literally, the first to take place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke references the second registration of Quirinius 11 years later in 6 AD in Acts 5.37. You can look that up on your own time. That one has been proven beyond all doubt by records we have discovered. You say, why are you bringing this up? Well, because it mentions that he was the governor during this time. Quirinius was not the governor during this time in Syria. Now, the word governor here, however, doesn't mean governor. It means simply the one who's in charge, the one who commands or the one who rules. Critics claim Luke couldn't be inspired because Quirinius wasn't governor of Syria until 6 AD. Well, first off, historians actually mentioned two governors at the time of Christ's birth, Saturnius and Volumnius. So in other words, the position wasn't an end-all, be-all role in the region. They were not necessarily the person in charge. Second, this critique was disproven when Egyptian documents were discovered that named Quirinius Augustus' specially appointed procurator in Syria in 3 BC. This appointment gave him greater authority than the governors and created quite a bit of tension between them which is why Luke calls him the one who commands and not governor because he wasn't governor. He didn't use that phrase because that's not the role he had. Again, a little research goes a long way. Thirdly, this makes the phrase the first to take place comment more understandable because this one, this registration happened during Quirinius' not just his first registration, but during his first stint as the main guy in the region a position he would be given later under the title governor in 6 AD, during which he oversaw a second registration. What's even more interesting is Justin Martyr calls him, not governor, but the procurator, like the Egyptian document says, in the region during this time when he refers to this passage in Luke's writings. And again, no one in that day challenges that claim that he was procurator. Again, I think it's most reasonable to think the guy shooting at a target 100 years away from it when documents were still in existence than those of us 1,900 years later. I think it's more correct that he is probably, uh, more uh, reliable that he is probably right. And we might be saying, "Well, it's Christmas Eve. Why are you taking all the time to do this? How about a nice happy message about Christmas? <laughs> the reason I'm taking the time to belabor the truth of these facts is because Luke took the time to put them in the scripture. They're important because if his claims are off, then how can we trust the reliability of everything else he says? Listen, the Christmas story is really cool. Like you got angels, you got shepherds, you got a baby in a manger, all sorts of cool events. But if it didn't actually happen that way, then it's all moot. And I'm not one for fairy tales personally. So I wanna know the reality of what the Bible has to say. So Luke took the time to do it. So it's important for us to do it, to make sure it's true. Now, because he isn't wrong, then that means the stories that follow aren't fanciful. They are real events and they are actual history, a firm foundation for our faith. And isn't that what Luke's about? He wants to show us that we have a reliable faith. That's what we've been studying, right? And he shows us here by giving us all this information so that those alive in that gate could look back and see that this is how it happened. Now that we've got the groundwork firmly settled, let's have our nice happy Christmas message. Let's build on it. Verse 3. Now it says, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. The phrase there went means in the process of going this took time during which Mary's pregnancy would progress so by the time we ended chapter 1 and we get to this point in chapter 2 9 months have gone by give or take a few weeks of course and so it says they would go they were all had to go into their own city Joseph and Mary's travel therefore was exceptional which would require even more planning because they weren't traveling there for a few days they were going to travel to stay for a while as we'll see later on as we continue to study through Luke Here Here it mentions that they had to go 80 miles to the south because his own city, verse 4 says, and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house, the family, and the lineage of David. Bethlehem was the city of David's birth. They had to travel quite a distance away from Nazareth, which is 80 miles in the north. Now, this could explain why the inn was full when they got there, because they would have been one of the last people to arrive at this location to check in to stay there for a while. One other bit of fact for you that I find very interesting is that this is exactly how Romans took their censuses, censai, however they say it, The Roman governor of Egypt issued this edict in the census of 104 AD. Gaius Vibius Maximus. They had the best names back then prefect of Egypt orders, seeing that the time has come for the house to house census, it is necessary to compel all those who for any cause whatsoever are residing outside their districts to return to their own homes, that they may both carry out the regular order of the census and may also diligently attend to the cultivation of their allotments. That's how they did it. And the Bible shows that's exactly how it was. Now, because her pregnancy was too, so far along, there was no plan to return to Nazareth right away. So they would live in Bethlehem for a while. So it says he brought Mary with her, verse 5, because she's also of the family of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So verse 6, and here we finally have the birth of Christ. And so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. The phrase there, and she brought forth her firstborn son, literally says, and she gave the son birth, the firstborn from her. Mary had many other sons and daughters after Jesus, but he held the preeminence. He was the firstborn son, and he was not obviously fathered by Joseph. He was a son of God. So he's unique, but she did have many other sons and daughters, as we'll see later in the scripture. Now, I mentions that she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. You know, I've always, for whatever reason, since I was a kid, I thought just cuteness with that word, swaddling clothes. I mean, it just sounds cute. But it was a square cloth that would be placed around the child, kind of like, you know, a, a pigs in a blanket, you know, kind of thing. You know, they'd wrap it around, and then it would be held in place by long, thin straight. You'll never see the, cross, the, the, the birth of Christ the same again. and and held in place by long, thin strips of linen that would be woven around the cloth. So they would put a straight dragon around the baby, you know, they would tie him up and they, and they, and they, that would keep him firm. They, the way they did it is because they felt like the limbs needed to be straight so that they wouldn't, they would grow, the bones would continue to grow correctly. And then it says mentioned here that she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in an inn. Again, manger is such a nice, happy word, manger. Like, I, you know, but you don't call the doggy dish manger, but that's what this is here. You know, this is the feeding trough, you know, the modern day equivalent of the doggy dish, you know, Now, why did that happen? Well, the end was full. Now, again, in, we have another probably wrong idea with the idea of inn. you know, that there were no, you know, two bedroom suites in this place. I mean, these were uh, most Israeli inns were just simply forts with open air stalls. And the stalls were the rooms that you would stay in. The Khan of the fort, he would provide food for your animals, but you had to provide your own bedding, you had to provide your own food. And oftentimes, an uh, inn's purpose was to protect travelers and their beasts and their business from thieves and the elements. So you sometimes conduct business from the courtyard there uh, where the animals were. That's the part where Mary and Joseph had to hang out. They didn't even get a stall, you know, they, they just had to sleep and she had to give birth out in public in the common courtyard with all the animals. Okay. If a story stopped here, it would only gain our attention because of how unbelievable the story was. This is how the Messiah entered our world. Couldn't God pick a better location? I don't know which one of you is a spouse that doesn't plan, but how many of you are married to the spouse that took you on a vacation and didn't plan well? Anybody here? Ooh, it got really dark in the room. (laughs) I think that may have touched too close. Sorry. You would think, God, you've had all eternity to plan this. Why did you do it this way? Why this way? And yet the juxtaposition is beautiful. We start this chapter with the most powerful man in the world a man who actually adopted the title title, Son of God. See, Julius Caesar was the guy who ruled before him, and he appointed Octavian as his successor, as his heir. Julius Caesar was declared a deity, a god, after his death posthumously. And so that made Octavian, Augustus, what? The Son of God. That's how we start the chapter, with the Son of God, in the world's eyes, making a decree. This self-proclaimed man-god makes a decree thinking he commands millions of people when in actuality, the Lord of the universe is simply using him as a tool to fulfill prophecy in the most unlikely fashion. Turn to the book of Micah chapter five. Keep your finger there because we're gonna go to Micah chapter four later on in our study. And you probably are familiar with this verse. If not, it's pretty cool stuff. Micah was a prophet to the nation of Israel nation of Judah, 700 years before, over 700 years before Christ was born. And he prophesied here in chapter five, verse two. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, and there's two Bethlehems in Israel. This signifies the one that's the city of David. Though you be little among the thousands of Judah, all the cities in Judah, though you be the, the most insignificant of towns, yet out of you shall he come forth unto me That is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Of course, the house of David is not exactly in favor like it used to be back in the day when David was king. A curse had been pronounced upon David's line. A judgment had occurred under David's line. And when Israel came back, when Judah came back from Babylon, there was no king. They had not had a king since the last king of Judah went into captivity. Joseph's line his family line is not something held in high esteem at this day and age and so he's not in Bethlehem he's in Nazareth beantown a nowhere place out in the middle of nowhere and yet God how is he going to get that guy back down to Bethlehem to fulfill this prophecy I know what I'll do I'll use the most powerful man in the world who thinks he's a god and I'll just steer him a little bit this way God's the one who's in charge God's the one who's in charge. The God of the universe was born in a barn, sleeping in a feeding trough because God had prophesied that's how it would happen hundreds of years before it ever happened. Philippians chapter two, verse eight, it talks about Jesus and it it shows us his mindset when he came to our world. It says, in being found in fashion as a man, appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The very nature of what Christ was doing was humility. It wouldn't serve for him to be born in a palace or to have big announcements. And it served for him to be born in the least of places. He was the heir to David's throne. He should be born in David's city, even though it was insignificant. So whether you think Augustus was a great man or a tyrant, different people in history think different things about him. Humility like this was unheard of by world rulers and still is today. I love what J.C. Ryle said, He said, little did these rulers think that they were helping to lay the foundation by giving the census, to lay the foundation of a kingdom before which the empires of this world would all go down one day. Isn't that cool? Little did they know. And this provides great comfort for us in the times that we live in. J.C. Rowe went on to say, a true Christian should never be greatly moved or disquieted by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. He should see with the eye of faith a hand, overruling all that they do to the praise of the glory of God. Isn't that truth? Like we don't have to be moved by what we see on Fox or CNN or anywhere else. I can say there's someone steering your handle. And you can only go so far. And you know what's cool about Jesus? Unlike Emperor Augustus, I don't know about you, but I've never felt like the son of God. So I can't relate to that guy. Everybody can relate to Jesus, rich or poor, important or ignored. His humility shows his love, that he's not ashamed to call any of us brethren, that he's not ashamed to be say that we are the sons and daughters of God. If that's the end of the story, that'd be cool enough, but it doesn't end there because there was fanfare, just not the fanfare you and I might expect. Look at verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Abiding in their field means they were living outdoors. They were permanent shepherds. These were not just guys who did the job every once in a while. Only the lowliest in Israeli society took the job of being a shepherd because the job requirements made it impossible for you to keep all the ceremonial laws that the rabbis had laid out. Now this placed them under the rabbinical ban, which means they couldn't testify in court. There were lots of things that they were forbidden from doing. They were also despised by the people because they were considered unclean and therefore they were not held in high esteem. Back in the, what is it, 1917, they said, don't let your daughter date a baseball player. Don't let your daughter date a lawyer. Don't let your daughter date, uh, sorry, Navy guys, Navy man. That was the three things. It was like 1911 is what the common phrase was, you know? But in that day, in Jesus' day, it would have been don't let your daughter date a shepherd. But what's interesting about these guys is I'm not sure they were the regular shepherds. The traditional story shows it that way. However, the locale begs an interesting question. Some suggest these were the very shepherds who watched over the temple flocks because those flocks were were pastured in Bethlehem year round. And if that's true, then these were the men trained by the priests to care for and inspect the sheep regularly to ensure they qualified for use during Passover. No blemish, no spot, right? No broken bone, none of those things. They were the ones to ensure that it didn't happen and that they would be regularly inspected so they could be used for the Passover feast. Might we find anything biblical about that? Turn back to Micah. How fitting the birth of Christ, the prophecy there. We have another prophecy nearby that says something so interesting. Micah chapter 4, verse 6, and we're going to read all the way through to verse 8. Prepare to have your mind blown. And in that day, says the Lord, will I assemble her that halts, and I will gather her that is driven out and her that I have afflicted, so his own people. And I will make her that halted a remnant and her that was cast far off a strong nation and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. Verse eight. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion unto you shall it come. Even it referring to the ruler there shall it come. Even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, At face value, you read it and go, okay, it's just a prophecy that someday God will send his Messiah to rule and reign. There's an interesting thought here, though. And thou, O tower of the flock? What does that mean? That phrase, O tower of the flock, it's the words Migdal Eder, a shepherd watchtower in the fields of Bethlehem. In other words, the announcement would come to Migdal Eder that the Messiah had come. The rabbis in Jesus' day believed this prophecy meant that the arrival of the Messiah would be announced at this place. Well, guess where the angels come? We don't know where Migdal Eder is today because the tower was destroyed. But somewhere in Bethlehem, there were shepherds, and guess where they kept their flocks? The temple shepherds did, at the tower of Migdal Eder. If that is indeed true, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, His announcement, the first people to see Him, will be the very people who are supposed to inspect the lambs of God to make sure that they were without blemish, without spot, without any broken bones. They would be the first ones to come and to see the King.
1: From the beginning of creation, God has desired to bless mankind. His heart and actions towards us is that of love and goodness. He longs to bless us, and the best blessing we can have from Him is His presence inside us. Working in us, molding us more into His very own image. Jesus coming down as a man and living alongside us is great news because God's plan was always to be with His people for all eternity. Isn't God so good? Taste and see His goodness. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at four zero seven five two three zero eight zero zero during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.